0: You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's empowered money management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC.
1: We are really excited to have our panel, so we'll get right to it. Uh, Nate Kading is going to be our moderator. Nate grew up in Corville. He's a West High Trojan. As a senior, he won three state championships, soccer, basketball, and football. He went on to the University of Iowa and was an All-American. He won the Lou Groza Award as the best kicker in United States, college. So he was then, um, went on and played nine years in the NFL and then made the conscious decision, he and his wife, Sam, to move back to Iowa City and Coralville. And now he is investing and is an entrepreneur in our community, investing here with his family of four kids, so Nate, thank you very much. We're really excited to have Bob Bowlesby back here today in Iowa City and Coralville. Tom Sealick, this breakfast started because Tom was complaining about it was winter again. And I said, well, it can't be that bad, Tom, because Bob Bowlesby is coming back from Dallas, Texas to Cedar Falls, Waterloo. It can't be that bad. I didn't say that Bob was spending a week in Arizona and Florida raising money for you and I, but he did come back. Bob grew up in Waterloo. He was a wrestler and team captain for the Minnesota State Moorhead and won the conference title his senior year at the whopping 165 pounds. (laughs) Bob went to work for the um, UNI Athletic Department, later becoming the Athletic Director for UNI. Then he moved to the University of Iowa, where we were lucky to have him for 16 years here. Then he decided to go kind of into semi-retirement and went on to Stanford, where he was the Athletic Director for six years there, then he went on to um, be the commissioner of the Big 12. And I think all of us can agree that if it wasn't for Bob Bowlsby, the Big 12 would not went the same direction as the Pac-12. So he has done a wonderful job there. Bob was on the NCAA basketball selection committee and headed it um, in 2005. He chaired the NCAA wrestling committee. He was on the USA Olympics committee for the 2008 Olympics. He was on the NCAA executive committee. He's a UNI Panthers Hall of Famer. And he also chose to come back to Iowa and help out UNI as the interim athletic director where he serves today.
2: Thank you, Kelly, and I appreciate being an opportunity to be part of this event. So, Tom, uh, appreciate all you do and continue to do and have done for decades here, really, and, and not only here but up in the Cedar Rapids area as well. Uh, it's good to welcome you back again, Bob. I appreciate everyone's time and being here this morning. It's, it's my pleasure to introduce our other esteemed guest. And I will admit on the front end, Beth, I did not do as good of a job as Kelly with your collegiate career Although she was a star soccer player in college and then became a coach and everything else. But Beth Getz was announced as the Henry B. and Patricia, Patricia B. Tippy Director of Athletics Chair of the University of Iowa in January, just this past January of 24, after serving five months as our interim Director and Deputy Director of Athletics and Chief Operating Officer before that. Beth joined Iowa Athletics from Ball State University, where she served as the director of athletics since May of 2018, and at Ball State, she directly supervised 19 Division I intercollegiate sports, all the head coaches and senior athletics department and professional staff. Getz previously served, Beth previously served as Minnesota's deputy athletics director from 2013 to 2015. And she was their interim athletics director during the 2015 and 2016 season. There's been a lot written about Beth. I know John Steppi is somewhere in here from the Gazette, so he can give you a lot more great quotes. But the one that I thought was uh, most impressive was her longtime friend and mentor, Brad Stevens, the president of the Boston Celtics, who said this of Beth just a couple months ago. She's one of the most, she's one of the best administrators and leaders I have ever worked with, and I'm glad she's found such success in college. Otherwise, I would be trying to hire her here. So, uh, it's my honor to welcome Beth and Bob back to Iowa City and Coralville, and Nate, we'll turn it over to you, buddy.
3: Thank you, Josh, you guys, there we go, perfect. Thanks everybody for being here, Beth, Bob. Thank you, Tom Selick, Thanks for getting everybody together. I think it's Tom Selick and Tucker Carlson right now in terms of getting the two hardest interviews on the planet. But be, we'd be hard pressed to get uh, two two better people to talk about the uh, the current state of college athletics, the the business of college athletics. It, uh, unless you've been living under a rock, um, it's been uh, there's been a lot of change in in, in you guys' world over the course of the last uh, even just couple years. I, I got my list here. Conference realignment, um, sports gambling, transfer portals, NIL, and collective. So there's a lot, a lot to go over. But uh, Bob, I wanted to start with you. 1990 was the first year you're here at the University of Iowa, athletics director, and, and and Beth here is just one month in or into her tenure. Take us back to 1990, your first month. Paint the picture for us here in Iowa City. What were some of the challenges? What were you most excited about as you were getting going?
0: Well, you know, it was a it was a very different environment than what I had at, at UNI. We were a fledgling Division One program. Everything was new and fresh and, and nobody really expected much of us. When I came to Iowa, it was a fully mature program. We had coaches that had been here a long time, they were very well established. And so it was a it was a different job. And uh you know, we we scrambled to sell every ticket that we could uh, possibly sell and to uh, get every donor that we could possibly sell. And, you know, it it seemed easy uh, when uh, you came to Iowa. The games at one o'clock, you all come and the stadium's full. And uh, it was it was similarly fairly easy to raise money, but it has its own complexities and and. You know, I, if I had any advice for Beth, it would be uh, get out before it's too late. Uh, you know, the, the uh, it, it's a it's a would wonderful have been helpful a couple a, months ago. <laughs> now, it's a, I I treasure my years at UNI and treasure my years at Iowa. In both cases, I, I had the pleasure of working with uh, extraordinary people, lots of great young people like you, you know, and I I don't I remember a little bit about your nine years in the nfl but i remember the sense of comfort i had on the sideline at the bowl game at when we're playing texas tech and i there there isn't any doubt katie's going to knock this right down the middle there there's there's no suspense to this whatsoever now wish
3: i felt the same way too no i
0: i I know you did you you knew you knew you were going to be able to do that but you know, the relationships were the same at both places. There are great cultures, uh, great cultures of doing things the right way. And, um, you know, I uh, probably the hardest decision I ever made in my career was to leave and go to Stanford. And uh, I had been recruited by Duke uh, during the middle of my tenure at Iowa and had always kind of had a uh, – um, a curiosity about the elite private school environment. And, and Stanford, of course, had had extraordinary success. So I, I'm glad that I went, but it was, it was amazingly difficult to do that, uh, to leave a place that, you know, my, my first job for pay in my entire life was selling soft drinks at Kinnick Stadium. And, I, and I, it took me years to figure out why uh, people bought a perfectly good Coca-Cola and dumped half of it out. Um,
1: and you don't have to do
0: that anymore, right? Yeah, well, once once I got to deal with some of the security issues, I I realized what was going on.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But Beth says, "Bob, uh, uh get out now, but there's we're, we're not letting you go. You're signed on the dotted line and you're here." So talk a bit about your your first month and uh, what your schedule's been like and everything that's been on your radar.
4: Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. At the end of the day, it's always about the people, and I think I was in Iowa City 10 minutes when I got here about 15, 16 months ago, um, when you just you just feel this overwhelming sense of community, and so the tradition of, of great leadership and great coaches um, and the passion from the community um, it, it, to some extent you can say you see that at schools across the country but it's different here it's so personal for everyone um, and I think you 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 feel that right away so um, it, it's been a you know a, a wonderful opportunity to be a part of that in the last uh, month or so as as we are obviously dialed in on what we want to do and need to do here to support our student athletes at the University of Iowa uh, but also being really mindful about what's going on uh, in the industry Um, and so that takes up a lot of time to make sure we can preserve and and continue to keep focus where it should be um, which is giving these young people great opportunities so that they uh, can come back to our communities and do great things like like you are.
3: Talk a bit about as a new athletics director do you take the organization through a new strategic planning process or how do you kind of vision out into past year one the immediate challenges and goals out into the future five ten years down the road
4: yeah we will do that and certainly part of that's new leadership um but part of that just is this moment in time in and So oh. Got me here. Um, You know, I I think there's there's going to be some shifting that we need to do all across the industry. Um, But I I do think it's the right time uh, to to look across the board and say, hey, how do we continue to leverage the strengths we have? Support um, our our coaches, recognizing in the same boat, right? We have some that um, Hall of Fame coaches that have been here, and and we may not be able to keep them here for another you know 10, 15 years. So what's the transition plan look like there? But how do we successfully navigate in the best way Iowa can? Uh, what's coming in the national landscape and continue to have great championships opportunities um, across our sports. So um, that that definitely will lead to a strategic planning uh, process that we'll do over the next year.
3: And that landscape obviously is changing. One of the big things is the conference realignment. We'll be welcoming Washington and all the other Pac-10 teams and others into the conference. And I'm curious from both of your perspective, at you and I, Bob. Currently, where does that leave some of our smaller Division One schools? And then Beth, what talk a bit about the the big 10 and and what we should all expect as fans as that as that grows and changes hey, bob if you want to go first
0: well you know that the um the landscape is changing and it's it's never been uh, there's never been a more difficult time to be a director of athletics on campus uh, and I, as an aside i i think iowa knocked it out of the park hiring beth I, she is she is top flight in every way and going to do a great job and you know uh when i was here I was very committed to the institution. I wore gold and black as often as I could, but I never had gold shoes. And so, um, you know, she's uh, she's already getting it right. So, uh, Beth, good luck, and and you'll you'll have your days where you shake your head and wonder what the hell you're doing. But uh, it's uh, you're you're the right person at the right time, and I'm I'm glad it worked out. Thank you. Um, relative to the landscape, uh, you know, there's there's just a lot of things that are in play right now that uh, have we've never experienced before. And I, I spent probably the last five or six years of my time at the Big 12. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Washington trying to uh, have people understand uh, what it is that we're, we're up against. Uh, what I learned was that uh, um, we're not always dealing with the best and brightest uh, in terms of uh, the folks we've sent to Washington, and they they have a lot of their their own agendas, and it is very difficult to get people to listen. They they want to, uh, in fact, in relative to athletics, elected officials uh, are are fans. That that's what they that's what they understand. They understand what they read in the newspaper or see on television, and it, it's very difficult to. Uh, To get the real story out there uh, so that they understand the nuances of of what is happening. And I I spent two years uh, chairing an NCA committee on name, image, and likeness, and we probably had a dozen guardrails that we were prepared to put into place when this was going to start. Principle among them was that NIL was not to be used as an inducement for transfer or initial enrollment. And it was it was quite clear. There was a fair amount of transparency in the model. Uh, student athletes would be able to teach lessons for fees, to give speaking engagements uh, for compensation, to sign autographs for money, to run their own camps and clinics if they wanted to. They would be been able to have an agent, uh, have a financial manager. It was a, a very substantial liberalization of of what was permissible, but uh, the NCAA refused to put it in place. Uh, their legal counsel said, we're going to get sued again, and of course, all of us knew we were going to get sued again, but we would have had a stake in the ground uh, that, that articulated what we stood for. And uh, instead, we now have 25 states that have no laws, we have 25 states that that have uh, a wide-ranging array of, of uh, laws that are incompatible with one another, um, and we have no NCAA rule uh, upon which they can any of us can rely, and so it's a fair question to ask whether or not we can get the genie back in the bottle at this point. And um, uh, it's uh, it's a very difficult environment. Uh, we are we are very close to a pay-for-play environment, and largely from the UNI perspective, we're we're below the fray. I mean, we don't, we have kids transfer out and we have kids transfer in. We just lost a a volleyball player to USC over an NIL deal and an opportunity to play sand volleyball. And, uh, but those, those are kind of few and far between. But, um, you know, we essentially are operating in an environment today where there are no scholarship limits. And what that, it, it, in, in football, you can have 85 full scholarships. But you now can put anybody on, on uh, any form of non-need based aid, any kind of NIL, uh, any kind of uh, grant money that might come from virtually any source. And so the, the practical effect of that is uh, you'll see the better programs stockpiling the better players. And uh, you know, there was a day when uh, football and basketball were unlimited uh, scholarships. There, there were no scholarship limits. And at the time, Notre Dame had the six best tailbacks in the country sitting on their bench. And uh, we could we could find ourselves with fewer and fewer institutions that have uh, more of the of the talent available. And so, you know, there's a there's the practical competitive aspect of all that. And then there's the fair question as to whether or not we really want professionals uh, playing for our for our colleges and universities. So it's enormously complex and we're right in the middle of it. But I will say after a long uh, period of watching it, uh, intercollegiate athletics and higher education has a way of finding its equilibrium. And and I think we will find equilibrium. Is it going to go back to where it was before or anything that really looks like it? I doubt it. But I I think we'll find equilibrium. Beth, there's a lot, lot to unpack there. How about (laughs) for us,
3: Hawk guys? How do we? uh, That was an incredible
4: summary. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, right, because we can go back and look at um, the many uh, steps along the way and and what could have changed. And we can also look in the future and talk about what rule you'd like and what rule you wouldn't. Um, But I think at the end of the day, the best thing we all can do now, right, is to acknowledge that the system has to look a little bit different. The, The amount of money, the business side of uh, of certainly, um, you know, big-time Division One athletics. You, we've got to reconcile that uh, with uh, the benefits that, that we provide to students and figure out what that looks like. And I think the exciting part of that uh, for most of us, which is you know, maybe sounds a little naive, but at the core, we had great experiences as student-athletes. And I don't know that one experience was better based on the number of shoes we had or the amount of money in our pocket. And so how do we figure out that mechanism to for that mechanism to exist at all types of institutions across the country, even if it feels a little bit um, different than it used to? Um, and I think it's really uh, key and important that as you're looking at the puzzle pieces that are going to exist is you need a framework we can debate for days about what the framework should be. What should the NIL rule, if we can have any rule, what does that look like? Um, And those are fair discussions, but can we get ourselves to a place where there is a framework um, where we have at least some window um, where you're gonna have some exemption from the next lawsuit we can't be in this uh, cycle of just having to be responsive and that's sort of where we found ourselves I think right now um, is we, we you know we've got all these antitrust issues uh, you're not sure which direction is going and so uh, you've you know Wild West is I think the word that our coaches are all using uh, to be sure so how do we get some framework that allows uh, an easy Equilibrium to set, and then you know what? We'll all figure it out. Um, and I think that, that that'll be the piece here. And, and certainly, what I think you know will happen at you and I and Iowa is we've all got to figure out how to navigate what that new landscape looks like in the way that's best for who we are, not how, what's best for one of our peers, but leverage our strengths. Um, and then we'll all find our own path forward.
3: What's you read from the student athletes' perspective, while it is the Wild West, how are the student athletes adjusting to this? get asked a lot you know that now it's an 18 year old hard enough going away from home for the first time and living in the dorms and those sort of things but now you're got you're juggling you know contract offers and nil money and those sort of things what's been the impact to the student athletes, from your perspective?
4: Yeah, I think it certainly varies, and some handle it with an incredible amount of grace. We've got no better, you don't have to look very far, obviously, you're in Iowa City, to see one that's managed that incredibly well, and all the pressure um, that comes with that, and Caitlin Clark. Uh, but we've got several student athletes that navigate that space, and you know, I think one of the things, and I don't know if Bob would agree with this, but you know, it's helpful when a student comes in and they've got a great support system, whatever that looks like, their family, um, if they are working with an agent, but they need people in their lives who have their best interest and so I think where you really start to worry is it's pretty clear quickly some that feel like they're getting pulled in different directions and maybe aren't getting um, advice about what's best for them not what's best for Iowa or you and I or anybody else but uh, but who's really looking out uh, for that individual but it is it's a lot to take I mean you're you're, you're at this point in their life where you're making an adjustment and um, now there's not any that would complain and we've had plenty of uh, f- uh, former athletes and alums who are like hey where <laughs> where's my I cut from when I would have been here, um, so I, I know that they like these opportunities and what great life learning experiences they are. These are all going to be ap- applicable to them in their professional careers in some way, um, shape, or form. And so that part of it's really neat, uh, but I do think it, it, you know, it causes us to pay more attention to their well-being. And we're seeing, for many reasons in society, increases in mental health issues. And I do think these pressures uh, that are experiencing play into that a little bit.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think it's probably a little early to to know just exactly how uh, the enterprise is going to handle all of it. Um, I I'm more concerned about how individual uh, student athletes handle it. And and I think I had an interesting um, exchange with Andrew Luck. We were we were both speaking to a speaking virtually uh, to a Stanford class recently, and and the question came up about. Um, having disparate compensation within teams you know having a, a quarterback or uh, or a running back that's making a lot of money or a single basketball player that's making a lot of money and what does that do to the locker room and what does it do to team chemistry and what does it do to uh the the um the the team building aspects of it and i, I you know i i think it's probably a little early to tell but andrew made a great point he said well you know um, that's the environment you live with in the professional ranks all the time, and you—you you lived it, Nate. Uh, there are people making millions, and there are people making the NFL minimum or the NBA minimum. So
3: the, the kickers at the minimum. Level, yeah, right? well, everybody
0: else. Yeah, can everybody hear the violin music in the background, to feeling sorry for Nate? Um, but it, it's. Uh, it's probably a little early to to know exactly how that chemistry fits together, and over a over a period of time, you, you know, there's do- bound to be some envy and some animosity. Uh, it's just a different environment, and the professional athletes deal with it and, uh, and I guess college athletes will deal with it as well, but it's just another aspect of this. And when, you know, I, I, uh, really have been proud to watch Caitlin because, uh, the, many of the generous gestures that she has had have been well publicized and, uh, you know, not everybody's going to do that. And, uh, so she's, she's really a model for, for others to emulate, but, um, you know, there's, there's, plenty of nefarious operators that uh, hover around intercollegiate athletics. And, um, you know, over the years, there have been some opportunities to live with that um, illegally here. You know, there's, there's always been the, the, uh, the undertone that, that Ronnie Harmon was on the take. And, you know, it's, uh, it's unfortunate because I don't know if that's accurate. Uh, I don't know what the real story is. But it's it's been hanging around for a while, and as a result, as far as I know, he doesn't come back here, and so it, it's uh, you know, the the uh, if you want to make light of it, uh, what we have in NIL right now has been permissible in the SEC for decades. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of that simple, but. Uh, uh, you know we we will adjust, and I, I think Beth is exactly right. we we ought to start making sure we're taking care of student athletes first and and uh, dealing with the experience that they have and then let it let other decisions emanate from there. This is early days of Nil, but I, I see
3: Kevin and some folks in donor relations at the foundation from the university. How have you guys juggled? There's only a finite amount of money right in between? donors that wanna give money directly to NIL or collectives and then also to directly to the athletics departments for facilities improvements or whatever. How have you guys sort of juggled, juggled that aspect?
4: Yeah, I do think um, it's something you have to keep an eye on. And I know for us at Iowa, we were fortunate that we didn't really see an impact um, in terms of the overall, um, you know, fundraising ability for the institution. And part of that's uh, certainly a credit to Kevin and his great team. Um, But, uh, you know, how sustainable is that? Um, And I think really our approach, and and part of it is philosophically giving everyone, including our staff on campus uh, um, and our fans and, and generous donors, an opportunity to really decide how they feel feel about it. Um, And so we really take the approach that we're donor centric. We want to make sure that uh, just like you would talk to them about scholarships or this facility project or this need or, um, you know, something that one of the colleges has going on, a scholarship need that they might have, um, and then really try to meet them where their passions are. So we talk to donors just in that way. And if it is right now an NIL um, interest and they want to support that, um, and because we can't do it directly, then we'll connect them uh, with the swarm. And I think we probably have uh, somebody representing the swarm here today but um, and they've been really great partners but how sustainable is that over time um, i think is always is a real question um, but people are going to give to where they feel really good about putting their money and that's the way it should uh, i think it should continue to to work is trying to align those passions
3: we need a few more billionaires here in iowa or something to help with keep well, our
0: coffers full you know the the um i, I think but going back to the culture that's in place here the sensibilities of iowans um i you know I, I have great confidence that that all the universities in the state will get it right um i'm less confident about everyone else in our ecosystem getting it right and I, the other thing that i'm really concerned about and and um, i i find it difficult to see an environment where this trickle down doesn't take place i think what you're going to see is is the the movement of more and more resources into football and men's and women's basketball and a, a few selected other sports and i think first you will see the decline of men's olympic sports uh or along funding lines and then eventually once once the men's side is cleared out and we have 12 sports on the women's side and four sports on the men's side uh you'll you'll see the decline of women's olympic sports too and and i uh, we're the only national Olympic Committee uh, in the entire world that doesn't provide governmental dollars to build our Olympic teams. Uh, we rely heavily on on the uh, colleges and universities for coaches and for students and competitors. Eighty-five uh, percent of the last uh, the last Olympic team uh, were were college current college athletes or or former college athletes. It, it is uh, when when you think about. Uh, looking at the podium, um, those people have all come through college programs almost. And I I just, uh, I'm fearful. This isn't a place where wrestling is ever going to go away, but there will be places where institutions just can't afford to support wrestling anymore. Well, when you lose wrestling programs or gymnastics programs or, Tennis or swimming programs, uh, you you know the the entire enterprise suffers as a result of that. There there's a uh, there's a lawsuit that's pending right now. It's called the House lawsuit, and House is a former swimmer at Arizona State University. Um, he got a group of plaintiffs lawyers that uh, got him to go after what should have been. Um, if you can use the term Alston money, the difference between room, board, books, tuition fees, and the full cost of attendance, which is, it varies from institution to institution, but it's it's up to $5,800 above your scholarship. Um, they are going after that uh, saying, well, had the had this rule been in place for us, instead of just for football and men's and women's basketball, we would have gotten X number of dollars. Well, they have plaintiffs, it's a class action lawsuit, they have thousands of plaintiffs in, in lots of non-revenue sports. And nobody told this kid that he's probably going to drive the dimin- the diminishment of the number of swimming programs around the country. Uh, there are going to be places that just say, we're not going to do it anymore. And I, I think our entire athletics ecosystem will be harmed by that. And, uh, and I know that our Olympic movement will be harmed by it.
4: Uh, that's. I, I think that point is really important, and particularly at a time. And I don't. College isn't the right thing for every young person, uh, but at particularly a time, we have less young men going to college across the uh, country in our universities. Now we're going to take uh, these opportunities away, and I think that's a concern. Because at the beginning of sports in college, it was about access to education. Um, and so, whether that's here at the University of Iowa or anywhere, um, how we do that and how we protect um, you know, men's sports uh, and women's Olympic sports, I think, is, is going to be critical in the years to come.
1: Beth,
3: talk a little bit about, just to change gears for a second. Uh... A long-term facilities plan for the University of Iowa and the Athletics Department. What's sort of immediately on the horizon? And if you look out 5, 10, 15 years, what's sort of on your wish list as you look at uh, facilities improvements or expansion?
4: Yeah, we've got a few short-term uh, projects that uh, are already uh, in progress and a few we're hoping we can launch here uh, shortly. But um, the, the Goshke family uh, pra- wrestling practice facility will open up here in April. It is going to be uh, literally one of the best in the in the world certainly the best here in the United States, and so that's going to serve both our programs. We're really excited about that. We're broke ground on a new gymnastics and spirit uh, spirit squad facility uh, thanks to some generous uh, philanthropic support. We're excited about that. Got some plans to uh, make some improvements to the baseball stadium. Um, And then I think most people have heard me start to talk a little bit about Carver Hawkeye Arena. So um, a beautiful facility, uh, 41 years old, um, and we need to make sure uh, we can utilize that for the next uh, 40 or at least the next 20 years here so um, excited about what that could look like we're sort of in a feasibility uh, study phase there uh, but I definitely need to look at some fan amenities certainly some things for our students want to create a invi- great environment but we also need to generate revenue um, and there's some nuances to, to how we might be able to make some adjustments there to do that um, uh, we have some other um, Uh, priorities as well around some of our other olympic sports we have a field hockey practice operations facility we're fundraising for right now as part of our hawkeye women rise uh, campaign with some improvements in softball and so um, i I don't know if there's actually bob can tell me this is there ever a time where you don't have a facilities need (laughs) Um, you're always uh, fixing something or building something new so it's a a constant the the next
0: time there's a lull in in, uh, construction will be the first time and, well said. And the only thing worse than being in the athletics arms race, facilities arms race, is not being in the athletics facilities arms race.
4: Yeah. Not building in, uh, then you're not making any progress, that's for sure. So lots of short-term things, and I think over time, it'll be really interesting just tying these all these conversations uh, or questions together. Um, how, how where we direct our resources, is that to uh, revenue of whatever kind athletes uh nil um, is that where we're putting our resources and does it cause us to pull back on some of these facility needs i think those are going to be some real questions facing us um where how we choose to to really allocate those resources going forward
3: bob take us back what were some of your highlights from a facilities perspective during your tenure here in iowa city what were some of the more fun projects you got done And, and give us maybe a little bit behind the scenes on how those came to be
0: uh, well, the biggest by far was the was the initial renovation of Kinnick. Uh, it was 110 million dollars in. I don't know, 2004, I think, when we took it to the Board of Regents, and they just about threw us out of the place because we really didn't. We told them we could raise the money, but we didn't have any, any money raised. And uh, and so uh, we came back, I believe it was six or eight weeks later, and uh, we had sold 46 suites and had about $60 million com- uh, committed. So um, to, to Beth's earlier point, the... Uh, the, the support of the Iowa fans has, has never changed over the years. And um, needless to say, the, the board uh, approved it right away. And and it was, uh, you know, we were very committed to trying to make uh, it uh, look like it's always looked. And I think subsequent uh, improvements to it have I've uh, done that as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, the... The greatest performance venue in college football. It, it's uh, proximity to the field, the intensity of the of the fan base, the fact that it's always sold out, and now with the the tradition of the wave, it's one of the great traditions in college sports. And so, uh, Kinnick is a uh, is a special place. And so that one I think is probably the the uh, the biggest facility project that uh, we did. But. You know there were lots of other ones and and unanticipated challenges that at one uh at one point i went over the outfield fence of the softball and track field uh in a canoe uh, so that that was kelly probably remembers yeah, that. It, yeah. It, was, it was a it was a 500 year flood and we had two of them in two years so it, it was uh you know that we had some we had some work to do on an emergency basis uh on that occasion but uh you know i i was blessed with uh, a brand new arena at the time and uh, you know i'm i'm involved uh, i've served on the uni foundation board for a few years and uh, we just completed a 250 million dollar fundraising campaign but part of that is a 50 million dollar renovation to the unidome the the place was built for 7.2 million dollars and now we're spending 50 million dollars to renovate it 50 years later i mean it's it's just extraordinary how how the the pricing and, and the needs have continued to escalate.
3: So let's say you had a magic wand and a blank checkbook, what would you do to Carver? We're gonna get some free consulting out of you right now.
0: I I haven't been in Carver since I left, so uh, I you know I don't. You got good ice cream and that, yeah. that may maybe be about it. What? Well, the the the, okay. the last time I was in Iowa City for any period of time was uh, for Bob Elliott's funeral, and it was also the last time I. I saw bump Elliot. And, uh, so it's, it's both a, a happy memory and a, and a really sad memory, but, um, it's, uh, I mean, Carver's a, Carver's a great, great venue. Um, and the, the bowl itself, I'm not sure what you'd do with it. You, you know, you, you got, uh, we, there would be ADA issues that have changed since the, the last time we did it. But, uh, um, you know, it, it's been a terrific facility for us forever, and, uh, and yet it's, um, you compare it to Hilton as an example, and having a, a middle um, walkway really makes it a lot easier for people to get to the seats. And that was always one of the ironies of Carver is the, the people who were most generous and had been the longest ticket holders had the longest way to go from the concourse down to their seats and so getting people in and out and the egress is is always a challenge and then you know the area uh, is not blessed with a whole lot of discretionary space so parking is always going to be a challenge and so you know i i think the more you can do to make it convenient inside the building the better the better off and uh, i i don't have any any numbers beth does i'm sure she's uh probably uh Waiting a little while to embark on that undertaking, but uh, you know buildings get old, and even the best ones have to be refurbished, and it's not getting any less expensive.
3: Is there anything best specifically about Carver as you started to study it, or just anecdotally as you've been there as a fan that you is on your priority list?
4: It is. I mean, it is a wonderful it is a wonderful facility and and so you know just the joy people have and how loud that building can be uh certainly when it's it's uh, packed is really neat so um you know we have started to look at a few things i mean um you know in and out and and how you get people up and down is one of those things concourse in the middle um it might be a challenge as we've worked on some feasibility options there but um we do think we are you know there's some opportunity for some premium space um and that certainly helps with some ongoing revenue generation uh, big uh, Ice cream seems to be the the thing most people want more of is Carver cones. Um, But I do think there's some unique ways that we might uh, be able to utilize uh, and expand the concourse, perhaps shrink it just a little bit uh, in terms of overall seating capacity um, so that there's some fan components to that and pull uh, not only our students but pull some of our fans a little bit closer uh, to the floor itself. So. It's amazing when you get those those architects looking at that uh, process, uh, what they can accomplish, um, and that's all internal. and, and uh, I think you know the university has some things that are uh, in and around parking that aren't necessarily athletic specific, but I think over time are going to benefit athletics. Um, and so it won't be too far down the road. Um, so speaking of blank checks, uh, keep those out because we're going to come. Uh, we're going to come knocking. But uh, you know that building services um, so many of our sports and it's such a critical piece of our history and who we are. Uh, and so we've got a responsibility to make sure it continues to be a great place for our fans and our students. It's
3: amazing how everything comes back to parking. I don't want any. As an old timer, I don't want any you know NIL money. I just want reimbursement all the parking tickets <laughs> I got during a as a college student at the university. But Beth, you mentioned Caitlin Clark, obviously a huge story not only here in the state but nationally. I've noticed now she has her own security guard that's traveling around with her. But talk a little bit about as her yeah three security guards that as her star has risen, how the athletics department, the university has supported her. It's such a unique case and unlike anything we've ever seen. How how have you guys kind of provided support for her as? you know, the complexities of of being Caitlin Clark have, have risen.
4: Yeah. uh, You know, I'll first say, as you say, her star has risen, which it certainly has, but what's remarkable about her is that she brought, she raised everyone else's star along with her. Um, and that's certainly her teammates, but what she's done for our university, for our state and for the game of women's basketball and chose to do, she's so intentional about being a great ambassador. Um, that, I mean, she's a once in a lifetime, not, not just generational women's, basketball student-athlete, but Bob, I haven't asked you this question, but I mean, you you keep brainstorming with people, what other college athlete has had, maybe Johnny football, but not in the same way, Um, but, uh, you know, over, over our lifetimes have had this sort of national impact, uh, but you know, I, it is really important when you have somebody with that profile that we do all we can to support her. And it's not just the university. As I look here at, at Josh, I mean, our community has done everything they can uh, to help support her and her, her family. And I mean, it's a lot to take in, and it's wonderful to see. But you're talking about a, a college student that can't really walk from one building to the other, um, you know, without a crowd around her. And that's a lot, uh, even though she wants to, uh, and is so generous with her time. How to navigate that. So uh, from making sure we uh, have a great security plan on our campus and our fans are very respectful so it's easier there Uh, but on the road um, as you now have seen pictures and lines um, you know it's a really cooperative uh, effort that has to happen with their security team so we do um, we do travel uh, with them um, you know and advance some of them out uh, out front to make sure they're they're locking down hotels and that we understand who's in and out and anybody with that profile most of the time it's just fan uh, just fans and and young young people want need to be around her but you got to be really careful so um, whether it's providing that type of support working closely with her family and others that uh, support all the you know things and, and agreements that she has going around that's all uh, certainly our, our, our priority and uh, we've seen that in our community as well
0: yeah I, I you know I think that she's certainly a, at least a generational talent there's no question about that I, I couldn't name another person that's had the kind of playing uh, impact that she has had but what's been impressive is the manner in which she's handled it. I, I just think for, a, for a, a, a young 20-something to be as mature and giving uh, and, and willing to raise all the boats uh, in women's basketball, and uh, there, there are people watching women's basketball that never considered it in the past. Um, she's, she's not a novelty. She's a great player. She's always... Uh, she nobody works harder than she works and the fact that that she's as humble and giving and uh, engaged with um, everything you'd want her to be engaged with it's it's a dream come true for an athletic director and a coach and um, I knew Lisa Bluter when she was Lisa Geske at uh, at UNI and um, it takes a special coach to be able to handle it too Uh, so Um, it's, they're both to be congratulated because, uh, that can be a pretty big distraction, uh, for a team. Um, even if she's somebody that's making the team outstanding, um, that, that, they're just a lot to go through and, uh, takes a special coach to do that as well.
3: She's what? What is she now? Best sixty six points away from the all time. Is there any way we can get her just underneath that so she can set that back at Carver? Or are they away or what's? How do we? How do we time all this Co- up? Can Coach you this? just
4: told me the other day. I got two games I got to win. <laughs> so what? Uh, no doubt it would be special if she's doing it here in front of our home home crowd. But she's a competitor, and the and our teams want to do everything they can win to to win each time they're on the court. So we'll have to see how that plays out. I think it's sixty five. Is it sixty? I think it's sixty five, not sixty six. Yeah. But I don't know if that one point is going to change the outcome or where it happens, but
3: we got obviously a lot of local business folks in town, community members, and the mayor from Cedar Rapids is here. Um, and you all, both of you, have worked in different college towns and different college markets. Can you speak a little bit to what an athletics department needs in terms of support from their local community, and, and maybe how Iowa City is different, or what we could do better? Any any kind of feedback for us here as how we can support the, the efforts?
0: Well, I'm kind of out of my depth on this question. I should actually have Mayor O'Donnell come up and answer this question, but I, I won't do that to her. But, uh, you know, there's a... Uh, the, where we sit is an interesting um, testament to how universities and communities work together because when I was still here, Kelly Hayworth and I were talking about uh, the river landing. And at the at the time... Um, it was an urban renewal area. I is, would that be an accurate characterization of, of this area? And yeah, and no, that's exactly right. How would you know that? Uh, oh, okay, all right. I just wanted to be clear. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think this is a this is a good example, uh, and the arena with uh, the I think the volleyball team is is playing there. Um, is a and we we always talked about uh, is there uh, or are there uh, University of Iowa teams that would could use an arena that's about the size that Extreme turned out to be and so I, you know I th- I think the the public private partnerships that are are now becoming more and more popular and more and more doable uh perhaps have never been more uh important than they are right now because higher education is under is under extreme pressure uh not just in the state of iowa but uh you know the, the uh, higher ed for the first time in history uh is uh enduring a uh, a less than 50 percent uh, approval rating from the general public um the legislature just introduced a bill in Iowa just yesterday that is uh, uh, has a significant impact upon uh, a number of different elements of, of university operations, including one that limits tuition increases to three percent, despite what may be a, a highly inflationary environment uh, for all the expenses. So you know there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of pressure in higher education. Um, as beth mentioned uh fewer and fewer males are are attending college uh it's uh, the historically black colleges and universities uh around the country are are now between 75 and 80 percent female and uh you know there are there are good paying jobs that are available and young men are deciding not to go to college and so um higher ed's under s- severe pressure Um, communities are under pressure and and the universities are typically uh, among the largest uh, uh, employers in the area if not the largest and so um, it's a there's never been a better time for uh, these partnerships and yet uh, just from the university perspective we tend not to be very good partners because we're rigid and we got lots of state rules and and we we have uh, things that are impediments to to real partnerships, and I, I think um, you know p- private schools have long gotten it right on that sort of partnership. They they realize that both parties could make money and prosper from from being uh, good partners. But I think it's a lot harder for state universities, and uh, it's harder than for the communities in which they reside. So um, you know, I d- I don't think higher ed is going to get any easier. I, I think I think it's going to Continue to trend in the direction it has, and and the you know the fact is many of of you uh, if you if you are honest uh, with others and with yourself uh, disagree with the politics that take place on on campuses. Um, you know there's a commonly held belief in the legislature that you know we're we're teaching uh, nothing but uh, political ideology and indoctrination on campus. And so, you know, whether that's accurate or not, uh, I think all of us that are close to it know that it it's not universally accurate. But there are people that bring their their personal politics into the classroom. And there are there are lots of people that really take issue with that. And so, you know, I I think the the town gown relationship and the town let and the and the the university uh, legislature uh, relationship are going to be. They're going to they're be threadbare in some places, and, and so that makes, that makes those kinds of uh, support programs uh, more and more difficult.
4: Uh, And I think at the end of the day, when we can find those genuine partnerships, I mean, you know, the town-gown relationship in terms of of making sure everybody's supporting everybody is different than being really intentional about how an institution serves your community and your state um, and how uh, we can meet people where they are and and do that. And from an athletic standpoint, we have the visibility and the platform to help. And so whether on our end that's um, making sure that health care is provided across our state, um, that other school that's on the other. Half obviously is doing great things uh, in in the ag world, and that's really important to our communities across the state of Iowa. Um, and you don't want that to get lost in in rhetoric and, and narratives that come up in in you know in, in politics and election season. So um, I think it's important to continue to do that um, and to really say, hey, what what do we need in our communities, and what roles can we all play? Because uh, at the end of the day, what we want to make sure is that we're providing a great quality life access to things that people need. To, to uh, you know, to not only have entertainment in our case, but you know, healthcare and all these other components that that that's fulfilling. So that's important to all of us locally, uh, but across the state of Iowa. And to do that, it's going to require difficult conversations and and uh, and partnerships and and trying to figure out how you can move forward together.
3: Great. I know Luke, you have a microphone back there. We've got about five more minutes. Does anybody have any questions for either Beth or Bob? I know this isn't a shy group, but...
1: Uh, Bob, just going back to the years, you know, several years ago when athletes transferred, if I remember right, they had to sit out a year before they could compete. Do you ever see the NCA bringing that back? Because I think that would definitely, you know, put a, a damper on this nil in the transferal portal.
0: Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right. Although, um, just to clarify... There, there were only four sports that had a transfer reco- uh, residence requirement. All, all the others, um, you know, if you wanted to transfer in wrestling, as an example, you could go and be immediately eligible. And so it, it was uh, essentially the sports that, that where there were lots of dollars and lots of time invested in recruiting. And uh, you know, it it allowed coaches to have control over their athletes in ways that. They probably, um, those prerogatives were abused on some occasions. Uh, you know, it the the, the typical way that, that it played out was uh, some young man or woman wants to transfer in one of the five sports that has a transfer residence requirement, and the coach would say, well, yeah, you can transfer, but you, uh, you can't transfer to um, uh, anybody within our league. Well, they, they would push back on that and say, well, I, I want to go to, somebody down the road and and you can't tell me I can't go there, you, en- you end up having a protracted uh, pushing and shoving match. And eventually the family lawyers up and, and the university capitulates and they transfer where they want to go. And so coaches brought it on somewhat by themselves uh, as a result of trying to manipulate where kids could go. And and uh, in, in the end, it was all about trying to keep them from transferring. Now um, they have the, the other end of the continuum. They have to constantly re-recruit their their athletes all the time and make sure that they stay happy. Well, you know what a novel concept that that shouldn't that shouldn't be something that coaches aren't doing. But um, we also don't need to have a situation where you get yelled at at a practice and you walk into the locker room and say, I'm done, I'm transferring, I'm going in the portal. So I I think creating some windows of time where the transfer can take place um, has had a – a positive effect on it and I think it will continue to uh, evolve. We'll will eventually have more structure around it. But I I think we're we're going to be dealing with an open marketplace in terms of being able to transfer. I, I don't think the transfer residence requirements will ever be put back in place because they're uh, they've been deemed by the courts to to be restraints of trade. And so um, you know we can we can put those kinds of rules in place. But over and over, the courts have held that, that they're not enforceable. And so I, I think we're probably stuck with, a, uh, with a, uh, fr- an open transfer. And, you know, I, I would advocate that we have uh, a one-time opportunity to transfer without residency requirement. And then after that, you, you, you have to sit a year. And and that's even been considered a restraint of trade. But I think from an educational standpoint, the the numbers are pretty compelling. The more times you transfer, the less likely you are to graduate. And so um, you know, I, I I think if you if you believe that this continues to be about getting an education, uh, seeing young people that have transferred four and five times during their career uh, is is just not uh, conducive to to. Uh, an appropriate academic opportunity. That's it.
3: Diggy, you got a good question in there, man. That was good. Um, Well, I think that wraps up. Jim has some Super Bowl trivia. We're going to give away some gift cards. But first, Bob, thank you so much for coming down. 380 back here to Iowa City. Hope you always consider it home. And Beth, I know I speak for all of us, uh, University of Iowa alumni and community members, and they we're super excited to have you at the helm and here to support uh, Iowa athletics and everything you're going to do to take us take us to newer levels. So thank you so much for, for making the time. This has been great. I'd also like to thank Midwest One Bank for sponsoring this podcast. You can learn more and experience simply better banking at Midwest Midwest1.bank. This podcast is produced by Upload Media Group, located in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. For more information on them, you can visit UploadMediaGroup.com. And of course, if you enjoy this show, please consider subscribing and reviewing on your podcast platform of choice. It helps us to continue to develop and grow. Real Success with Nate Cading is a Corridor Media Group podcast. For more information, visit CorridorBusiness.com.